Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week I have a different guest. We just sit around and have a conversation about Catholicism from their particular point of view. Sometimes it might be a musician, a liturgist, it might be an artist, it might be an academic, a writer, a blogger. Today my guest is Father James Shaw, S.J., author of many books and articles. He's the retired professor of political philosophy at Georgetown, and his most recent book is Reasonable Pleasures, The Strange Coherence of Catholicism. Father Scholl, welcome to More Christianity. Well, thank you. It's very nice to be on your program. We've got a philosopher here with us today, and Father, as a philosopher, you've got the gift of being able to communicate with people in a down-to-earth way, in a way which is accessible. It's a gift which not all philosophers have, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. they tell the story of the Rahner brothers, of Karl Rahner and Hugo Rahner. One brother, Hugo, said his vocation was to translate his brother's German into German that the Germans could understand. That sounds about right. I'm reminded of that famous essay by C.S. Lewis where he was writing to seminarians and he said to them, you need to see if you can translate your theology into words that your cleaning lady can understand and then you'll be a good preacher. (laughs) Exactly, that's right. So I'm going to start right off now, by Father Scholl, by asking you a question which a lot of people in the street might ask you, and that is, what good is philosophy anyway? Well, the answer to that question is, technically speaking, if you mean what use does it have for me to get a job or something like that, technically speaking, it has no use except in this sense, that Samuel Johnson once told the following story that he said um, that let's suppose that you're at a tea party and at a tea party there is silver cutlery there and let's suppose you find out at the tea party that one of the men there, women there, uh, doesn't believe in private property and doesn't believe in justice. And he said that's a theoretical question, ought we to be just or ought there to be private property? And he said, if you have somebody there, what you should do when they leave, he said, is count the cutlery. See whether they took any knives or not, because they just told you that they don't have to theoretically respect your private property. So the the principle is is that your ideas very well, uh, very much govern what you do. And so therefore, unless you have your head on straight that way, what you actually do do follows from generally speaking, your ideas. In other words, ideas have consequences. Exactly. Did you say that was Dr. Johnson who wrote that? Yeah. Dr. Johnson has said most of the things wise in the English language that need to be said, actually. Wasn't it Dr. Johnson who also was engaged in a philosophical discussion about whether material things really exist, and he went over and kicked a brick to make sure that it did? (laughs) Yeah. So I heard he kicked the other guy in the shins, and when he said, ouch, he said, well, why did you say ouch, you know? <laughs> okay. So philosophy has its practical uses. Exactly. Technically speaking, Aristotle will, will make the distinction between things that are of no use and things that are of use. And if you remember Peter's famous book about the leisure of the basis of culture, the whole fundamental point of that book was that the highest things that we do with have no use. We aren't doing them for a purpose. We are doing them because they're good for themselves or in their own sake. 
a thing is true, all we want to know about it is true, not so much next what we're going to do with it, if anything. First thing we need to know is whether it's true or not, and there's a certain delight and pleasure in that precise thing, unless you experience the pleasure of really uh, seeing the truth of the thing, apart from what, anything you're going to do with it, uh, then you won't have any kind of real support, so to speak, for your uh, ideas and for your actions. Whereas what you really need to do is see that these things are true and that there's a, there's a delight in seeing that they are true. So there's such a thing as the delight of the mind, and that delight of the mind is precisely when you do see that things are true and that things make sense and that things follow from certain things. Things can be logical. And so that to think that the world is in chaos or things don't follow or you don't know what's going to happen next or there's no order, that kind of thing is, uh, leads to a life of, of confusion and chaos for the most part. And this is why uh, I think that education, in a certain sense, needs to be directed first to the things that are unimportant, that is to say the things that are true for their own sake, for their own selves, and that this idea that, uh, you know, we have a lot of this anymore, the whole critique of academia is that, of course, is now uh, to be considered if you get a job with the thing or not. Well, getting a job is an important thing, but that's not the purpose of academia. The purpose of academia is that there are things that are not simply useful. There are things that are that are beyond use, and those things that are beyond use is really what life is all about, and the most important things in life are about them. And so that unless you have some insight or some training or some beginning or some leading that will guide you there, uh, you'll always end up your all your life with never having had a, a genuine experience of transcendence or of, uh, of insight into reality itself. You know, when you say some things are just plain true and not necessarily useful in the first instance, I'm reminded of a conversation I had after I converted to the Catholic faith from being an Anglican priest. Someone said to me, well, Dwight, do you like the Catholic Church? And I said, no, I like the Anglican Church. I, I didn't convert to the Catholic Church because I liked it. I converted to it because it was true. And um, that knocked them for a loop a little bit. But I know what you're talking about. In fact, a couple of chapters in your book, you spend talking about wit and humor and play and sports as a couple of illustrations of things which are good for their own sake and aren't necessarily useful. And in fact, we go into them not looking for the usefulness. You, you don't look for the usefulness of a joke. Uh, you don't look for the usefulness of playing a game or playing a sport. I would add uh, music and dancing and, and other things. And I, I remember that Pope Benedict taught as well that there was a certain way in which we regard the liturgy as play. Exactly. That the liturgy as worship is not something which is useful, and yet we come and we invest great time, money, and care in this particularly unusual and useless human activity. Yes. Well, you know that uh, Hugo Rahner has a book called Men at Play, mm -hmm. and that thing when you get to the liturgy, which was also the Gardini book uh, that Pope Benedict was writing about, that uh, that the relationship between play, if I might take a minute to explain my own ideas about this, but the relationship between play, or, uh, play and, and liturgy is very close in this sense, that you need to have an experience of things for their own sake, and that liturgy is something for its own sake. Now, what's the primary experience of a thing for its own sake that we might have? You might say, what's the experience that a young boy or, uh, uh, might have of, um, of something for its own sake? Well, the point is, it is watching a good ball game in which the total absorption of his attention is not on himself, 
but it's on the game. What's going on out there? What's happening out there? And the game has its own framework, its own time, its own rules, its own evolution. And and if you're absorbed in the game, you're outside of yourself. You're looking at something that is unfolding before you, so to speak, and that you are beholding it, be, uh, beholding it as it comes about. And the uh, the analogy to the liturgy is almost perfect there because that's what you do in the liturgy. You mm-hmm. are beholding an event which is coming about uh, for its own sake, and that that event which is coming about is, in this case, a divine event, which is, totally absorbs our own once we understand what it is, our own reality in its in its uh, being carried out before us, and so therefore that the going to the mass or going to the game in a certain sense is, in a way, being outside of ourselves uh, into something which makes us more ourselves. Again, C.S. Lewis has that observation uh, when he says <clears throat> to seek true friendship. You you share with a person something which takes you both outside of yourselves and and lifts you to a different plane, and therefore you experience a, a kind of love on a, on a new level and a new dimension. And that yeah. brings us to the experience of human love, which of course also is for its own sake. You should not be going into a relationship for what you can get out of it or what you can contribute to it, but simply because love has taken you over and it's something which exists for its own sake. The other side of that coin, I guess, would, would you agree, Father Shaw, is that if you do turn something which should be appreciated for its own sake into a moneymaker or into something which is very practical, you're kind of undermining the experience, maybe even prostituting the experience. Exactly. And I like to use this example about uh, the distinction between the good of a thing and, you might say, the usefulness of a thing. So let's suppose you have a uh, bottle of beer. The beer has a certain taste to it, and we get accustomed to it and enjoy it or don't enjoy it as, as it is. Let's suppose you know that there is a um, vial of strychnine, a poison, in the beer. But it's, uh, it's tasteless and odorless and, and doesn't have any smell. So the, the taste of the beer is, is identical. Now, what a beer is, objectively speaking, is a food or a drink. And therefore, a good thing is a good thing for you. In other words, if it were not a good thing for you, you wouldn't drink it. So you ask the question, would you drink the beer if you knew there was a strict sign, even though it tasted the same? Well, the answer is no. You wouldn't do that. Why not? Well, because it's no longer a beer. It's no longer a drink. It's a poison. Well, now, what's the point? Well, the point is you can separate the pleasure of a thing from the thing itself that it exists. So when you do that, when you separate the pleasure from the thing itself, then what you've done is you've concentrated on the pleasure and left aside that which for which the pleasure exists, which is the good of the of the thing itself. So that so unless you see the good of the thing itself, the pleasure is something in nature, as Aristotle says, that it follows from the uh, good itself. So the pleasure is designed by nature to teach you to do what you ought to do, but you can because of the nature of our of our bodies, the nature of our minds. You can, in your mind, separate the two. You can't really do that. You can't really make a beer uh, taste like something else. It will always taste like a beer, and if you make it taste like something else, then it tastes like something else. But you can change its substance so that it's a poison without and still not changing the taste. When you do that, you have preserved the taste, and you have destroyed the beer, and therefore you don't drink it. And so therefore, whenever we do that, all of our sins, in a certain sense, come down to the capacity we have to separate the thing itself from what it ought to be to what the the pleasure or the good or the end that we want it to make it. You can separate these two 
and then go ahead and do it and then justify ourselves because there is a certain sense in which it is justified that the thing does taste good. Okay, so you can extend this same thing and say, for instance, a chocolate bar is food and you eat that to get energy and to get nourishment and for the enjoyment of the chocolate. But should you go back and eat 15 chocolate bars just for the taste... And once you get that away from it, then you become a glutton. And there's nothing wrong with food having a good taste. It's supposed to have a good taste. And we're supposed to enjoy it. So, you, you know, you've got to be delicate there about, about not getting into a kind of a position that anything that tastes good is bad. That's wrong. Everything that tastes good is good if it is really good and it really tastes good. And you should acknowledge that. But the point is that there's a certain moderation in things about how much you need, how much this and that, and so forth. That's what you have to learn about your life. I mean, how is it that I rule myself so that the things that are good that I, that I can appreciate and the things that I tend to exaggerate, I bring back to a certain center so that I don't exaggerate them and put them in the right place. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is retired Professor James Shaw, S.J. He's written lots of books and articles. His most recent book, Reasonable Pleasures, is talking about this very question of uh, how reasonable it is to understand the truth, how reasonable it is and pleasurable it is to actually grasp the truth and to struggle with the truth. If you're enjoying this philosophical discussion, I encourage you to get his latest book, Reasonable Pleasures. Also, my latest book, The Romance of Religion, is published. I encourage you to go to my website, DwightLongenecker.com. Investigate that. It's all about why stories are important for sharing the faith. Father Shaw, um, you said that Catholicism is an intellectual religion in your book, and that really intrigued me and excited me because there's an awful lot of religion out there today which is non-intellectual, and there's a certain kind of anti-intellectualism. I was brought up as an um, evangelical fundamentalist, and you know there was a certain amount of distrust amongst my religious right. teachers where they, they would kind of, you know, say, oh, all that philosophy stuff, that goes into, you can't trust those intellectuals, those academics. They were responding against, the, I guess, the criticism of this, the, the scriptures and the criticism of the faith by, by atheists and intellectuals. But you're coming back and insisting, no, Catholicism is, by its very nature, an intellectual religion, something which grapples with the big ideas. And one of the opening um, chapters of your book, you talk about the importance of dogma. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, the prejudice we have against dogma in the modern world and, and why it's important? Yes. Well, I, mean, I tend to be a Chetertonian on this question. And uh, Chetertonian always says, that, and this is Aristotle too, that the purpose of the mind is to make distinctions. The purpose of the mind is to form dogmas, that is to say, to say this thing is true and that thing is not true. And that we are given minds in order to know the truth of things. And so that therefore that the very structure of our being, so we are defined as a uh, the rational animal. What does that mean? It means that we are a being who is composed of body and spirit, and they belong together as one person, so they work together in, in harmony. Uh, they should work together in harmony, at least. We can make them not do that. But the point about it is that the purpose of the mind is to know the truth of things. And that the truth of things means, as St. Thomas says, that your mind is conformed to what is out there, to what is real, what is true. And so that to say that the thing is true, that this thing is true and that thing is not true, is the purpose of the mind. So that Plato says, for example, to say truth is to say of what is that it is and of what is not that it is not. And that the purpose of the mind, as uh, Monsignor Sokolowski always says, 
as the purpose of the mind is to make a distinction, to say this thing is not that thing. And and he makes the point, which is a really good point, that the first act of the mind is not to do something or to make something, but simply to to know and to see. And that thing to say that this thing is this thing, until you can do that, until you know what it is, you can't say do anything about it unless I know it's a cat or a, I can't really know how to handle this this thing that's out there until I, the first thing I know is what it is. So there's a certain pleasure, a certain desire, a certain uh, consolation in knowing that this thing is really so. It's really important that I know that this thing is a dog, for example, and not a bear. If I don't know that, then I don't know how to deal with it. And so therefore our minds guide us into not only knowing the truth of things, but then beyond the truth, and we have to ask the question, well, okay, now I know what this thing is. The question is, do I pet it, or do I feed it, or do I run from it? Do I shoot it? What do I do? And that that can follow from the truth of the thing about what it is. But if you don't know what it is, you're paralyzed with regard to what reaction to the thing is. So the first function of the mind is to know what the thing is. And it's therefore it's important to know that what you're dealing with is a human being. And that therefore, when you're dealing with a human being, you have to deal with a human being after the manner in which he is, namely as a human being. And therefore, that you deal with them in terms of argument, in terms of discussion, in terms of reason about what is true and what is not true. And that once you deal with him only on other questions about usefulness or pleasure or something like that, you're not really dealing, coming to grips with that person as a person, as a free person who is telling you what is the, he thinks about this thing and is willing to say that he holds this when you're willing to uh, argue with him about it, about whether that's true or not. So man is a reasoning animal. He's a re- reasonable uh, creature of God, created to think, created to solve problems, created to discover the truth. And that's why we have reasoning and rational abilities. Now, what interests me about this with a, a modern American religion is that in that great marketplace of uh, Christianity, which is out there in, in the United States today, there's an awful lot not only of suspicion against intellectuals and against philosophy, but also a, a great surge of, on the one hand, turning religion into something utilitarian. In other words, preachers are out there doing sermons on how to parent your teens and how to manage your budget and how to look forward to old age and how to keep fit and how to be cured of your addictions and so forth. In other words, it's turned religion into, on the one hand, a kind of self-help course, which is utilitarian, and that seems to be matched up with an upsurge of sentimentalism and and subjective emotionalism in which everybody has to feel good and have a wonderful worship experience and, you know, kind of get high on Jesus and all this. And what is not totally missing but largely missing in popular American Christianity is this element of dogmatism and intellectualism, the proper kind of intellectualism which you're espousing. Now, in your book, Father Shaw, you actually say that this— gives us pleasure. There aren't too many philosophy students um, who have to take Philosophy 101 and, and learn the basics who would say that it gave them pleasure. I can remember my philosophy course in college, and it actually did give me pleasure, so maybe I'm one of the weirdos. But did you get it across to your students to say, look, this is fascinating, this is fun? I would put it this way. First of all, the idea comes from Aristotle, and he's no mean authority on these things. And Aristotle says something like this, that if you do not see the proper pleasure in intelligence and thinking. What you are likely to do is then go and look for pleasure some other place. He says this particularly politicians, actually. And he says because they do not have time for or interest in uh, intellectual things, 
and therefore they're lacking something in their being, they then go to other kind of pleasures, whether it be sex or power or something like that, and they look for the substitution for that pleasure that comes from knowing the truth in that area. And so therefore it has consequences. But the main point about it is, is that you have to really experience it itself. And that's why we read Plato and we read Aristotle, we read St. Thomas, we read St. Augustine. It's an amazing experience to me as a teacher over many years. Now, when students do read these things, or even things like, I particularly am a fan of orthodoxy, for example, or, or C.S. Lewis. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Till We Have Faces, for example. Till We Have Faces is an extraordinary book, which is about that whole thing about Cupid and Psyche and, and Beauty and the Beast and this kind of thing. But the extraordinary thing about that book is precisely that the philosopher, in a certain sense, when it comes to the end, finds out that the world isn't just made in justice, but it's made in something more than justice, made in, in mercy. And so that the, the student, when they, when they see that, all of a sudden their lives kind of perk up, they, they, they change. And so very often what's happening is that we simply are not reading the right thing. And the reason why we're not reading the right thing is because people kind of sense that if you do read the right things, these terrible things like knowing the truth and saying there is such a thing is true will happen to you, which is what, why multiculturalism, this kind of thing, is so important because they are based on the premises, premises that there is no truth, there can be no truth, and it's dangerous if there is a truth, and anybody who claims there is a truth is a dangerous man of the civil society. It's not just simply a question of classic philosophy, but it's a question of classic philosophy being rejected by the culture in order that the culture can do what it wants to do. And therefore, that the reason why the culture shouldn't be doing what it wants to do or can't do it or shouldn't do what it wants to do is precisely because it rejects the truth. So right. therefore, it has to end up by denying that, you know, that fetuses are human beings that to deny that there's a difference between men and women. So it has to deny all of these things precisely in order that it can do what it wants to do. And one of the dangers, therefore, also, people who are too lazy to think, too lazy to go on that intellectual journey and do that work, and are looking only for what's practical and utilitarian or only yielding to their subjective emotions and basic drives, is that people can't exist without the truth. So they're therefore going to start looking for authority figures who will give them the shortcut by just giving them the answers and not making them think it through. And that, to my mind, and I don't know whether you would agree, Father Scholl, is a recipe for totalitarianism because people will look for the security and the certainty of truth, but they don't want to do the hard work to find it, so they'll trust their political leaders to give them what they should believe uh, and tell them what to do, and that way danger lies. One of the things I'd, like, I'd add to that is that when we go back to the question about, about Catholicism being an intellectual religion, we've been blessed to have Benedict as Pope, and He's really given us a great guidance on this thing, and, and it really comes out of St. Thomas and St. Augustine. But the point is, is that the Christianity, as uh, Benedict says in uh, the Regensburg Lecture, he says that Christianity was originally directed not to other religions. So that when St. Paul was told to go to Macedonia, the reason he was told to go to Macedonia was and not to, say, India or China or someplace else, the reason they were told he was they were told to go to, to Macedonia because they were told to go to Greece. And what was Greece? Greece was the home of philosophy, of Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides and the rest. Why did Revelation want to go there? He said two reasons. One, 
because there's already in Revelation, certain in the Old Testament, particularly in the New Testament, certain things which are in fact philosophical, which you can figure out by your philosophical mind. Things like the existence of God or some kind of order in things or some kind of human nature. And he said those things are reaffirmed in, in Revelation, but Revelation also teaches us some things that you can't figure out by reason, but which are not unreasonable. For that the purpose of, of Revelation, ultimately, was to direct the divine reason, which is not contradictory to, to reason, was to direct the divine revelation to human reason. To what human reason? To that human reason which was thinking its way through the best that it could with regard to what the human being was about. And when it did this, it found that it couldn't find out all of the answers. And one of the main problems that it couldn't find out was this question about God. So that Aristotle and Plato arrive at some notion of a first mover or a first being, a first good. But what they what they couldn't figure out was the thing you were talking about a little bit earlier was about it uh, that the perfection of human human uh, living is also in friendship, and therefore that Aristotle says that that God was lonely, and therefore that therefore he lacked something that he ought to have ought to have if he's going to be perfect. It seems to seem to him from the philosophical viewpoint, and yet when you come with Christian revelation, and you address the exact same question that God is not presented as lonely in Christian revelation, but he's presented as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a mutual love within one being, and that that is the nature of the God that he's addressed. So therefore, the God that is the God, so to speak, is not lonely. And so therefore, that revelation was addressed to human philosophy when human philosophy is thinking the best that it can about what really is true. And so that therefore, you realize suddenly that reason exists in revelation and reason exists in reason are related to each other. And once you see that they're related to each other, then the whole thing becomes, uh, becomes uh, as I say, intellectual. That this whole thing makes sense. So right from the very beginning, you're saying that with the ministry of St. Paul, who himself was highly educated, uh, he went to speak to and preach to the Greeks. And you remember, to, remember the scene, he said, go to Macedonia and, and help me. Right. History shows us the philosophy took us so far, and then divine re- revelation fulfills what they had discovered exactly. uh, and completes it and shows the truth that we couldn't actually figure out by ourselves. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today has been retired Professor James Shaw, SJ, author of many books and articles. His most recent book, Reasonable Pleasures, goes further into this question of how pleasurable it is to understand the truth and seek the truth, and how also God has given us these truths in order to lead us to the fullness of his abundant life. Thank you, Dr. Shaw, for being with us today. And again, you've been listening to More Christianity.